Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership, a special entrepreneurial and leadership series brought to you by my friends at Equity Bank. Today, we have Scott Schwindemann on the show. Scott has been the president and CEO at Lubrication Engineers since 2007, having started there as a laboratory technician in 1981 while he was still in college, and he worked his way up through the ranks. Today, he oversees the company that has more than 100 employees in the U.S. and a large network of independent consultants and distributors who sell lubrication engineer products and services worldwide. Since 1981, Lubrication Engineers has manufactured and distributed high-performance lubricants made of a highly refined base oils and propriety additives. To complement its lubricants, Lubrication Engineers offers a full line of lubrication reliability products and services and then they're one of the gems in the wichita community one of those hidden gems it's amazing that this company um, is essentially behind the scenes affecting companies worldwide i consider scott a personal mentor of mine i've worked with him a handful of times over the last five years i've got to know him uh, personally as a leadership mentor with many conversations over lunch over life and leadership and uh, this is why I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. It's uh, essentially the same conversation I've had with Scott over the years, and he's truly one of the leaders that I think really gets it. Uh, you've heard me talk about those leaders on almost every show, with someone that combines intensity of will with a humble, teachable spirit. That is Scott in spades. Uh, you can learn a lot from this conversation, as he is a great man, a great leader, a great mentor, and a great friend. Again, this show is spot- brought to you by... Uh, Equity Bank. It's a special entrepreneurial and leadership series. Equity Bank is a team that really understands fully what it takes to start and grow a business, everything from the small startup to the large corporation. It's been exciting to watch Equity Bank grow here in Wichita into one of the fastest growing banks in the Midwest. Equity Bank is now listed on the NASDAQ exchange and has locations all across Kansas, as well as Oklahoma, Missouri, and Arkansas. And clearly this team at Equity Bank knows how to lead for growth. So if you feel like your current bank is more of a follower than a leader and you want to work with a bank that really understands your needs, then check out my friends at Equity Bank. Go to equitybank.com to learn more. Again, thanks for tuning in. Now let's enjoy this conversation with Scott Schwindemann, the president and CEO of Lubrication Engineers. Scott, it's great to see you again. Welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Yeah. You know, we've we've 
I don't know how long we known each other, four or five years maybe. And I've At been least, yeah. asking or been wanting, desiring to sit down with you for the longest time talking about leadership. <laughs> I've had some really fun conversations and lunches with you. I've always appreciated your style. Um, we're going to definitely dive into that. But are you from here? I can't. I don't think I knew. Are you from here or not? Yeah, I'm from uh, West Wichita, born and raised here. And just the opportunities just turned out that I stayed in Wichita. I had some opportunities to leave, but you know, really the best opportunities were always here and remain to be here yeah. in Wichita. What was the dream? So you went, did you go to school here locally or what did you do? Sure. I, you know, I was, like I said, born and raised in West Wichita, went to West High and went to Wichita State. That's where I got my degree, got all my business education, everything out there. And, uh, yeah, just just ended up being here in Wichita. And the dream was what when you went to Wichita State? Did you? I mean, what was the big idea? Oh, I didn't. You know, I didn't go to Wichita State right out of school. I went to night school, and I really went to work for a company when I was in high school that is really still related to what I do today. And because of that, being working for that business, it led me to what degree path that I took, which was an engineering degree. Yeah, and that kind of led you into and. And when I met you, and I'd, I'd heard the name lubrication engineers, but it's one of those for someone who's who doesn't know the business or understand it, it's like one of those hidden gems, or it's or it's like one of those you didn't even know that it's here in Wichita, and you did what you did, and you, right. you're impacting companies all across the globe, right? Right. right. Yeah. yeah, we're a global global business. Just this week, I spoke to the downtown Rotary Club and uh, gave the kind of the story of lubrication engineers and its relationship to the city, though it was a business not founded in Wichita. It was right. founded in Fort Worth, Texas. And we talked about that whole history of of how the company ended up being here and, and really all the things we're involved with. And, and the crowd left. I've, I've received many messages since that time about – Wow, we didn't know you were here, and really the breadth of what you do. Yeah, I mean, and I count me in that group, and and I was like, wow, and it, it is an amazing story in the fact that, well, to me too, uh, being a fan of business and how businesses operate, and coming from operations side, and I love, you know, I'm kind of a gearhead when it comes. I like how things mm-hmm. work, but the fact that that your company and the ideas behind it and the science behind the lubrication and everything else and and how drastically what I was taken aback with how drastic it was the savings is if you invested in these kind of maintenance programs and the lubrication I mean it blows me away talk a little bit about that well with our with our programs you know the company really started out when we were just a product company we manufactured lubricants we took our lubricants out into the marketplace and we said you know we got the best lubricant and every company will tell you that of their product it's the best product out there and that worked for the company really through the probably 2000 but the sales have been stagnant for about 15 years company was profitable but it wasn't growing and if you're not growing you're dying so we started to look at how we could educate our customer to really appreciate the value they were getting out of our products and we started to associate with other companies and currently we have partnerships with 14 other different vendors who do who do different things to help in lubrication reliability in an industry and because of that we became the industry thought leader about how do you implement these things and how do you bring that return and today through all of our surveys and studies we found out that just by doing best practice 
practices of lubrication reliability, we can reduce your maintenance costs on average somewhere around 30%. That's amazing. If you then take the lubricant, which is always follows now everything else we do, we do all this up front, then we say, you know, we've saved you 30%. You might want to look at the lubricant and the additional savings you can get there. We'll see an additional 20%. That is amazing. That's a 50% inc- I mean, that's just that's 50% more cash flow or money or investment that I'm right. able to do that I couldn't do before. And and people don't realize, you know, when you look at a maintenance budget, lubricants are less than 1% of that maintenance budget. But you really need to think about the fact if the lubricant fails or you don't keep it clean or dry or whatever, and you have that failure, well, that little bearing can put that whole plant out of production for many, many hours. And those dollars are huge. <laughs> and so when you look at it, this investment here pays huge returns. Uh, we have larger customers that save millions of dollars. We have one of our major customers who won't let us talk about the savings they have. They see that as an economic advantage in the industry they serve. Interesting. It's that powerful. I mean, and you talk about some of these large manufacturing bases, and here in Wichita, obviously, aviation is, comes mm-hmm. first to mind. And it's just, holy cow, you know. And it's probably one of those things. I know, at least for me, um, again, being an operation-minded guy, but it's something that I wouldn't have thought of that could have saved me that much on manufa- maintenance costs, you know. Right. Well, you let's look at one of you know, our largest aviation manufacturer in Wichita. You know, they have over 20,000 rotational assets. So you have 20,000 opportunities there to have a failure, which will shut that whole production line down. And by our monitoring, our software we use to monitor that equipment, we're able to prevent that from happening or, at worst case, predict that this is when a down moment's coming so they can schedule accordingly with, with a scheduled downtime instead of an unscheduled downtime. It's just just fascinating to me. I think how does how many employees are we talking about here locally and and globally that are that you're accountable for? Well, you know, lubrication engineers, though we have a large footprint, true employees is about 125. Mm -hmm. Most of those are technical people or people in our plant. But when you look at the way we go to market, we go to market in the United States with a fully commissioned sales force. Typically, they are degreed engineers. They have protected territory. There's 80 of those people. They usually have other people that work below them. You look at our international breadth where we're in 55 foreign countries and roughly 1,200 people are employed through those distributors exclusively for LE. So really in a workforce, we've got around 1,500 people that are representing LE on any given day. While the employee count is low, we are well represented in the model that we, we go out to the marketplace with. And the and the biggest challenge as you're sitting here as a CEO, what would you say is the biggest challenge? Well, the biggest challenge is convincing that that end user that we really do have a value proposition to them. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, when it's less than 1% of your maintenance budget, you cannot imagine that that less than 1% could impact you at 50% mm-hmm. uh, of costs there. And so bringing case studies to show them. But some people are very, very skeptical. And we look for culture that's adaptable to change. Uh, if you get into a 
company where it's very regimented, they, they believe they already know the answer, that's usually not a customer of LE. And, and we train our people just to move on down the road and let's look for somebody who is open to new progressive ideas. And you'll be surprised how many of the ones who maybe are closed this year, five years from now, when they have new management, they're calling us going, come back and tell us about how we can improve. It's interesting. I haven't heard somebody say that in a long time, that when they're, they're going out and they're looking for the right fit. I mean, it, it makes sense, but you're really as almost a litmus test or a due diligence in your sales process is you're looking at the culture. We That's absolutely one of the first things we look at is, is the culture adaptable to change? Uh, are they going to allow somebody to move the cheese from where it was to a new position? If they are, then there is potential for us to bring value to them. If they're not, we'll never bring them value. They, they will talk to you, and, and literally, I hate to say it, they'll waste time. They'll waste their time, which is very valuable, and ours. And we have enough clients that are wanting us in to do this work that really we're not going to wait on them. They either make the decision or we're moving on to the next person who needs that help. You know, and even from a, a value perception, um, having that kind of um, – a surety or confidence, if you will, like, eh, maybe you're not the right fit. You know, mm-hmm. that's um, that says a, a lot about an organization, right? I mean, it's kind of like the example you'd, I always saw in the military where in Marine Corps specific, the Marine Corps always had a philosophy of like, you know, they're not standing out front of the door trying to beckon you in. Right. They're letting you walk by and they're looking for that individual that goes – Hey, I want to be in. And then you go, nah, I don't think so. And you're hoping to see that that person goes, no, wait, you know. Yeah, I do want to be in. I do want to be in. And we, you know, we have customers that way. We have had customers that we said, look, you know, we just don't see this as a fit at this time. Uh, you know, if you, these things change and they, and they do go, wait, 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 don't leave. What do we need to change to get there? Mm-hmm. And we will, we'll work with them then. But it, it's interesting. What we do really comes behind just seeing if they they have a culture that's adaptable to change. I like that. Would you consider that kind of a foundation internally of LE's culture? I mean, that's certainly a foundation or a leadership foundation that I strongly believe in. Mm-hmm. And when you look at a leadership culture, would you define your organization that way, one that's adaptable and looking for progressive change? We are looking for change because we, we, you know, as we went into this new dynamic of providing service, being that thought leader, that required a change within our company. Uh, we had individuals who believed that we sold lubricants. That's all we did. We had no business in educating, training, or being a thought leader. And we had to change that culture. So we went through that very troubling time. Uh, we lost some very veteran employees who, who did not fit that culture of change. And so I think that made us stronger because we can now look at a person and understand, are they going to be adaptable or are they not going to be adaptable to change? How are you, looking back at your progression and, and making it to this, becoming the CEO, um, your leadership journey, it, it, all of us have at some point, um, you know, levels of leadership that we kind of progress through. Um, to me, you're that kind of that level four, level five, but, you know, with all the breadth and experience and the knowledge and the wisdom that you have. Was there any defining moments within your career or people along the way that really stand out that, that, that you can remember those defining pivot points from like, oh, now I'm starting to get it? 
Oh, there, there is. Uh, you know, uh, I always like to talk about everybody should have a mentor, mm-hmm. uh, somebody that they look up to and they, they really see how that person can help advance themselves. And I always like to tell people, don't just look for the good mentor. The bad mentor will teach you just as much, if maybe not maybe more, more right. than a good mentor did. And I would say a past CEO of Lubrication Engineers, who was a very good friend of mine, was probably the worst mentor I ever had. <laughs> but he definitely taught me things not to do. I watched him lead in a way that, that really damaged the company. Uh, not It was not intent, his intention to damage the company, but just his leadership style, very authoritarian uh, really hurt the company. And so I learned a lot from him. And I always say he's one of the best mentors I had. I also had a gentleman who, when we went into this venture or moving to thought leadership, was just a consultant, a business consultant. I'd brought him in to kind of look at what the business was doing, help me understand how we could advance it. And he really challenged me hard to change the model change the model. If you'll do these things, you'll become that thought leader, you'll become that service provider, your business will thrive and grow. And uh, he was absolutely right. Had I not had him, I think today we still would be producing lubricants, making a good return, but really not in the growth mode that we are today and we're all enjoying. Interesting. How much of that that pushing from him was about business model and theory and or um, individual leadership styles from you challenging you to change how you looked at life and leadership. When he came in, it was more about the business model and how we could structure the business and how we can make it grow. Uh, he presented that to me, and when he saw that I really wasn't moving as quickly as I needed to be, then he went after my leadership style and said, look, you know, you're you're a good leader, but you need to be more aggressive at your leadership. You tend to be more of a team player, and you want to get buy-in from everybody, which is good, but you need to drive the stake in the ground and say, this is where we're going. Your team is looking for that. They, they enjoy the fact that they can talk to you freely about anything, but you need to lead for them. And that was a change in my dynamic of leadership to actually say the more visionary, this is where we're going. This is what we need to do now. People around me, uh, let's make this happen. Hey, we're about halfway through the conversation, but I wanted to take the time to talk about my good friends, the sponsor here of the special series at Equity Bank. Have you ever noticed that most business bankers seem to really understand just one thing? It's banking, right? And not a lot about business. It makes sense since most banks were built generations ago and now they're often run by caretakers, not business builders. Well, it's not the case here at Equity Bank. The bankers at Equity Bank didn't inherit a bank generations ago. They built one of their own. They know that building something takes expertise, vision, and hard work. And over the past decade, they've built one of the region's fastest-growing banks by working side-by-side with customers, with entrepreneurs, with leaders in communities all throughout Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Recently, Equity Bank was listed on the NASDAQ Exchange, which gives them even greater capabilities to take on those big deals that growing businesses need to keep on growing. So if you're tired of talking to bankers who've never really ran or owned or built a business, then I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised when you talk to my friends at Equity Bank. Thanks for listening to this show. Let's get back to the conversation, this unique and special series on leadership and entrepreneurship brought to you by my friends at Equity Bank. 
You know, it is interesting because we go in and we we think like, yeah, I'm not going to be this autocratic, uh, or I'm not going to be this you know dictatorial type leader that we've all worked for. I'm going to be this open. I'm going to keep you know inclusive. Right. We're going to have consensus. We're going to. But when you, and which is all good and well, but to your point, I think you're right. I think at some point when we look at what do people actually follow, they follow courageous decision making. They follow courageous visions. They they follow boldness, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think, and I say this almost in every episode, but it is that combination of intensity. I think the great leaders, the great organizations are ones that embrace that intensity with the humble, teachable spirit, right? And where that Venn diagram right. intersects, that's the sweet spot. Right. And, and I think to get to that sweet spot, it does mean putting a stake in the ground. This is the vision that I have. How do we get there? Show us how we get there. This is where we're going and why we're going there. Don't be afraid to make things a little uncomfortable, right? I mean, not in a tyrannical sense, but just that you can do mm-hmm. better. Just like all the great coaches that we've had, right? And right. you look back, you right. know, and Lombardi's a great example of that. You right. Know? You want, you know, just continue to challenge them to move ahead. We're, we're currently expanding uh, with the product lines that we're going to make, and we're looking at other uh, people's products that we can make within our facilities. And that's challenging today to our operations people, uh, additional SKUs, additional product lines, making something that's not core to what we've done before. But they are rising to that occasion. But it is, I can tell, we're stressing them pretty hard <laughs> to do that. But isn't that um... – I think that's one of the myths about life and leadership. I don't know any great leader that I've always looked up to or any great organization I've been associated with, studied, or, or even been a part of. Um, there was always this gnawing, unsettling, not in a bad way, but a gnawing, unsettling. There was never like, hey, isn't this great? Everything's going smooth. It was always – there was always some level of chaos always looming around the corner or cropping up or some challenge. And, and, and the great organizations were the ones that embraced what I called embracing the chaos and, and being that composed force within it. Yeah. Right? No, I would agree. You know, you, if you don't have chaos, if everything's just going good, then, then you're not growing. You are mm-hmm. dying. There should always be some chaos in that approach. Uh you know, we grew the business. We went to become this thought leader. Through being that thought leader, we were approached by a Japanese firm to manufacture their products about five years ago. And in doing so, we we manufactured some of their products in our plant. They then approached us to build a plant for them, and we did do that. We just brought that plant online uh, the first part of 2019 here. And that really challenged us to work with somebody else along that line. Uh, and then, like I said, today, now our new challenge, we, we successfully did that. It's online. But now the next challenge is how can we do this for other people, whether making their products or managing their plants. Uh, we, we have three other major manufacturers here in the U.S. that are allied uh, businesses to lubrication that are looking at us to maybe build them plants or manage their plants for them. That's interesting. And, and, and that's that plant that's on the, the west side that's up there on right. 53rd Street, right? right? And, and is the, what I like about that story, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's nothing that you were strategically seeking. It was an opportunity that presented itself. Is Absolutely. that correct? And I think that's key, right? And it's like, it's, it's like, 
but you were doing some kind of work to be prepared for that opportunity. What do you think that was that allowed you to, to number one, identify that as an opportunity, and then two, having the courage to say, yeah, let's do it? Well, I think I think it, we were identified by that the Japanese firm because of our thought leadership. Mm-hmm. They saw us as one of the pristine, best quality lubricant manufacturers in the United States. They are recognized worldwide, and they wanted to enter the U.S. market, and they wanted to have a partner who understood the U.S. or the America's market. So I think because of our thought leadership, that's what brought them to us. To say that we were prepared for that opportunity is probably not true. The real truth of the matter is that they came three times, and I sent them away two times. (laughs) And on the third time, they presented a piece of paper that had a large number on it, and my CFO said, I don't care if you don't want to do this, we're going to do this. (laughs) And so that really drove us to move forward Uh, in the building of lubrication engineers and the late 70s, early 80s, I was involved with that. And uh, what I came to find out as we were working with the Japanese firm is they were looking for somebody who had built a similar plant. And the reality was, I'm probably the last one left around that's truly built a plant. And so that that was of interest to them also. And I also knew their technology. And there was that was rare that anybody was still here in the States that knew how to make their products. I love that, though, because it does speak to um, the professionalism of technical and tactical proficiency of always knowing yourself both individually and as an organization, right, and pushing. And and that's what I meant more about being prepared. It wasn't like you felt like you were prepared, Mm -hmm. but because you were – I guess there had to be some intentionality behind saying that you're a thought leader. I mean, that just just didn't happen – accidentally or by itself, right? Right. You had to put some strategic thought saying we are going to be a thought leader, right? Right. Well, just through through our actions of educating end users and everything, uh, by our success in that, presenting at various conferences and everything, we became the de facto thought leader. Uh, yeah. today, today, uh, we're asked to speak, uh, our employees are asked to speak at many conferences across the world due to the fact that we're recognized as that thought leader in maintenance and machine reliability. Yeah. What do you, how do you, how do you see yourself as a leader? That's a broad question, but I mean, in terms of style, in terms of um, what you like about your style, what you're trying to fix, what you're trying to work on, how do you see yourself? Well, I'm probably not the authoritarian leader. I definitely like to paint the vision of where we're going and then look to my executive management to provide ideas how we will accomplish that goal and then go to the rank-and-file employees and say, this is what we're aiming at. This is how we plan to get there. This is our roadmap. always tell people that work for me, you know, I don't care how you get to the end result. You don't have to do it the way you think I would do it as long as you don't kill, maim, do anything like that and get us to the end result. That's fine. And uh, so I think that empowers my people to think on their own, which is really what I I want them to do. So I'm probably more of a a laid-back leader. Now, you talk to my executive management group. They'll tell you that whatever it is I do – 
there's no doubt which direction we're going to be going. Mm -hmm. I don't think I do that, but evidently I do. So, (laughs) yeah, this, you know, and and having worked with some of your your folks uh, on the executive team in the middle and below, they, they do describe you as, and I see it too, this, this, this level of intensity, which is healthy, which I think is good that people are drawn to. Um, Right. And, it is a laid-back approach, but it, there is a level of intensity and professionalism there. Um, and I think from an outside observer and knowing you for the, mm-hmm. the time that I have, that they don't want to let you down, right? Yeah. And that's a good thing to have. And I don't know how you – you know, it's kind of like it's a difference between, you know, there's nothing worse than – I mean, it would be more painful to get from you in the way that you are the disappointed father speech than it would – uh, to get the belt lashing from you, <laughs> you know yeah, what that yeah. means? And it would be very painful to, to let you down. It, I'm curious. I, I don't know how one gets there. There's no roadmap necessarily, but how do you think uh, a father, a leader, or somebody gets to that point, do you think, where it's like, you know, I, I want to stay because I don't want to let him down? I, I would hope that it's respect and integrity of that person. Uh, you know, I will always take care of those who are working with me, but I expect you to perform. Yeah. And, and when you become part of the team, which we believe we have a, a very strong team, we're all in it together. Mm-hmm. And so when you're part of a team, you don't want to let the team down. And, and that's something I try to foster all the time. Yeah. I like it. And I know that, that, that hits on the head. And I know that's why I appreciate you as a leader in the style that you have, because I think that's, I mean, that's the type of father I want to be, right? And I think yeah. that's the type of father you want to be. You probably saw that in your own father, I'm guessing, maybe. I don't know. Well, was it? yeah, I, I didn't. My father passed away when I, when I was very young. Oh, interesting. Then. But, so, but I had a, I had another male role model who had worked with my father, who was an executive vice president of Boeing. And uh, he kind of took me under his wing. And so a, a lot of my leadership style probably comes from watching yeah. him. Yeah. Uh, when I was younger, I spent much time at the Boeing plant uh, on Mahogany Row, which is where all the executives were, with him and, and going places. And so I would accredit him probably to – and he's one of my mentors um, that that really shaped uh, my vision in, in in leadership, and and honestly, I didn't realize he was doing it at the time. Yeah, you just were. You, yeah, you're yeah, just just, just learning, 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 right? And just through mm-hmm. osmosis, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. I I don't think I remembered that. Maybe you did tell me that your father passed away when young. I just didn't. I didn't. It didn't resonate with me. Yeah, and I kind of remember the story now about about the Boeing. Interesting though. Where's lubrication engineers? What's next? What's exciting for you? And what are you looking forward to? Well, what's exciting next is, is kind of like what I referred to here a little bit ago. We've got other companies that want us to look at building mm-hmm. plants for them. Uh, you know, I'm, I always like to build things. That's the engineering background in me. I enjoy that piece of it. So I see it, I see growth for the company there. Uh, we see continued growth in, in our industrial customers with lubrication engineers. We're getting many more multi-plant, multinational companies coming to us asking us to roll out our programs across all plant locations. Uh, five years ago, it might just be one of many. Today, we're seeing that, that they want us in every plant. So that's, that's exciting to do. And then this new venture where we're, we're actually going out and looking to help other companies in building their product line or making their products for them, uh, 
bring them the value of our research and development and our technical knowledge to advance them, not to the damage of lubrication engineers, but to the advancement of industry across the world. How can people, uh, I'm assuming that sounds like a growth mode to me. So are you always looking for good people? Are you always looking for new people to join? We, 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 we are looking. Uh, we're a company that likes to promote from within. Uh, a lot of the individuals who work for me, quite honestly, were kids I knew when mm-hmm. they were growing up, were friends of my 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 daughters and my son. And, uh, you know, again, kind of back to that, they don't want to disappoint you. And so we, we hire those types of, of people to come in. We promote them up. Uh, we have, on average, a 17-year tenure with yeah. our employees. So they, when you come to lubrication engineers, if you're the right fit, it's not unlikely that you may make that your career for your life. Uh, we believe in taking care of our employees. We believe in paying them a proper wage and really having them be part of the team. Yeah, that I remember that striked me or struck me of the amount of tenure and longevity on so many employees, which right. speaks volumes, right? Right. And sometimes that can, can hurt you. We had a major manufacturer looking at us to come in and do our work for them. And, and it was interesting to, to have their team say, well, you, this tenure means that you're slow, you're stodgy, you won't be able to re- react and adapt to us. And in that meeting, you know, I said, well, can you please share your tenure? We had nobody in the room from their company that had been there longer than two years. Oh, my gosh. And uh, they, they, when they left that day, they said, we will not uh, probably select you to do this process in our facilities. 90 days later and now three years later, they're a large aluminum uh, processing plant with 17 plants, locations worldwide. We're 100% taking care of them. Wow. And uh, those people that came to the room are no longer there. <laughs> So, so, you know, so, yeah. so I, I do think tenure brings something. I, and I didn't necessarily disagree with him. Sometimes tenure can cause. It can, Eric. It can cause that stagnation, right. that media, you know, you start right. feeling warm bathing in mediocrity and it feels fine. Right. right? And, and we, they become complacent. Right. They come, and, and to like you spoke earlier of, they just, they don't like the change. Everything's fine. Mm-hmm. Let's just kind of do this. So we always keep a sense of urgency in the business that while it may be good today, it's going to change tomorrow. I think, yeah, it, it it's. And that's what I meant about not being afraid to make things a little uncomfortable. That, that it kind of communicating in however, you, in whatever way you can, that this is this is life and death here. We've got 130 lives plus all their families at stake, and that's a big deal, right? Oh, absolutely. We we actually look at it as the 1,200. Tw- right, even yeah, more so. We 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 look at it. Anybody who is associated with the lubrication engineers uh, business. We're, we're responsible. Our decisions will impact each and every one of those persons' lives, and and we certainly don't want to be the one that impacts them negatively. We only want to impact them to the positive. Yeah, and I wish more businesses would look at it that way. It's, it does surprise me how many even like they focus on, oh, hey, we're one big family. I don't like looking at it that way mm-hmm. because I have family members I don't like to be around. Right. But if we look at ourselves as professional teams – that are always trying to achieve, you know, some sort of professional excellence. Right. And always trying to be flexible and adaptable and aware to the changes and whatever. Always mm-hmm. pushing it. Pushing people outside of their comfort zone is 
is how I like to look at it, right? right. Constantly. Yeah. And, we, and we look at that all the way from, from the person on the plant floor all the way to the executive top is we're always pushing because that's where growth occurs. That's where innovation occurs mm-hmm. in how we move things ahead. And when you, I go back and look at our transformation into being this thought leader, it's really because we were pushing each other to move ahead and advance ourselves and get ahead of any competitive uh, position that was out there. Which I think is unique for a company that is so um, heavily, I mean, the percentage of engineers and engineering mindsets that you have in that organization. I mean, if it had a personality test of the type, I mean, it would be, it's it's engineering heavy. Mm-hmm. And I know when I worked at the flight test center, which was engineering heavy, I had unique engin- leadership challenges to try to get people. Right. And I don't see that in your organization. It is more um, entrepreneurial, I guess, is the sense, or it's more flexible or adaptable than, than most organizations I've seen or worked within or with that are so heavily engineering on the engineering side. Right. And, and we do have those types of people. And, and as management, we have to know how to interact with mm-hmm. them. Uh, we are unique in the fact that we have many engineers who are, are have very good social skills. And they're mm-hmm. able to go out and assess the situation with the customer and bring it back. And we're able to talk about that and solve whatever that issue may be. And, you know, we're very nimble by that approach too where a major let's just take exxon mobile for instance for them to make a formulation change would take years for us to do a formulation change to meet a customer need in an application literally can happen in 24 hours if that's necessary and it's that nimbleness that brings that customer base to us yeah and if if you're working with a very established business that has very little change they're probably an ExxonMobil customer. If you're dealing with innovation and a customer just changing their processing and they're looking for, for how to do things more efficient, how to bring a better return to their bottom line, we're probably the company they're wanting to deal with. Yeah. Well, I don't blame them. Like I said, I've been a fan of yours since I've met you. I've, I'm really appreciative of your style. I'm appreciative of the culture and the business. And, and you know, having seen a little bit behind the curtains myself, I, I think it's a great organization. And I think, you know, it, you're a great man leading it. So uh, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, no problem. Glad that you had me. Thanks. Hey, thanks for listening to this special entrepreneurial and leadership series of Dose of Leadership brought to you by my friends at Equity Bank. Make sure to subscribe to Dose of Leadership where you can hear more great stories in this unique and special series. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a listen to all of my Dose of Leadership podcasts, all of my episodes, and see why Fortune, Entrepreneur, and Inc. Magazine all recommend this as a must-listen. Dose of Leadership features candid conversations with amazing guests, leading high-performing experts and organizations, large and small, all over the world. Find Dose of Leadership on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and go ahead and visit doseofleadership.com where you can find out more information about the show, myself, my speaking engagements, my keynotes, live seminars, and my mastermind events. Thanks for tuning in, and have a great day. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.